You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, in the midst of his tribulation and exile, you gave the Apostle John a vision. And in that vision, you said to them, as I believe you want to say to us this morning, Behold, I make all things new. You are the chosen of the Father, come to renew all of creation. So we ask your blessing on these tithes and offerings. We ask your blessing on our lives. Because it didn't have to be this way, but you chose to use us for that work of renewal. Sure, you could have done it yourself, but your plan is to take us as your followers and to call us to yourself, to choose us, and then to equip us with your Holy Spirit, and then to commission us and send us forth as agents of kingdom change in the world. So prepare us for that. So now break open your word to nourish us for that. And so speak to us through your spirit in the innermost parts of our being that we too might be commissioned in this place and at this time to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it took us over 500 years... But apparently we have just found uh, England's King Richard III. I don't know if you've been following the story. It's kind of interesting. Found him under a parking lot for social services. There's kind of an irony, this great uh, king. And it's been interesting to read these late-breaking obituaries, you know, 500 years later. uh, Who was he? Was he as bad as Shakespeare had us believe? Um, What is a king? Who was he as a person? What would he do to uh, usurp and rise uh, uh, to the throne? I mean, he's kind of, how badly would you want to be king of England? What would you do? Would you, would you kill for it? Would you kill children? Would you kill your nephews? All kinds of questions. Um, questions like, have you seen the pictures and you see the deformity in his spine? And you think, wow, man, that's got to have been hard. That's a serious limitation for a guy who's got to ride a horse and then sit erect on a throne, what would he do to overcome uh, that limitation? And then, of course, uh, how could a guy who's so gifted administratively and really powerful on the battlefield end up in 1485 dead, slumped over a horse with a dagger stuck in his buttocks for spite and ride off into obscurity for 500 years? It's kind of interesting to to learn more about Richard III. I think as Americans, we're fascinated with kings. We don't have them. We don't want them here. Uh, thank you very much. But we're really interested in their lives, royalty. and So we ponder them, and we send our paparazzi after them in search of the king. I think when we ask these questions, we're really asking questions about ourselves, aren't we? We're really asking questions like, what's the value of my life? Or, do I have any influence in the world? Or, you know what, when it's all over, will anybody even remember? These are the kinds of questions that we ask when we think about a a king. And I don't know how uh, much uh, King Richard III is helpful to you as you ask those questions for your life. I actually think possibly pretty helpful. I know this morning God has you here in church because he wants you to entertain those questions about your life in the presence of of his King Jesus. 
And so what kind of a person is he? Jesus Christ. Well, if you and I would ever let Jesus Christ speak for himself, I'm convinced he would speak to us with such a royal authority that he would challenge everything about who we are. But he would also speak to us with such a nurturing and gentle subservience that he would take us in our places of deepest brokenness and lift us up to the heights of heaven. That's the kind of person that your Savior Jesus Christ is. If I were just to put it into two words, I'd say Jesus is a servant king. Servant king. I want you to think about that for a second because if you think too hard, you're going to realize that is an oxymoron. Servant king? Because in any society, there's always a hierarchy, whether you admit it or not, from high school on. And there's always a line. And there's someone at the head of the line, there's someone at the end. And a king is nobody if he isn't the person at the head of the line. He's got the most of whatever you're using to measure greatness. And a servant is always the person at the end of the line. He's got the least of whatever it is you're measuring. And so how is it possible that our Savior, Jesus Christ, could be a servant king? Well, in the miracle of the way that God has stepped into time and space to reveal his person and life to us, this is the way he's communicated himself to us. I mean, Jesus takes that line and he says, the first will be last and the last will be first. He inverts the whole equation. He comes as a king who doesn't have his feet washed, but he washes the feet of his subject and He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of person that Jesus Christ is. He's he's a servant king. And uh, we're going to be searching for this king over the next six weeks during Lent. I hope you'll join us for all of these worship services. We're looking to discover Jesus. And we're going to discover Jesus not by finding his bones buried under a parking lot somewhere. Because the testimony of history is that there are no bones on this planet for Jesus. The tomb is empty. He's resurrected from the dead. He's alive and well. And if you want to search for Jesus, the best way to search for him is first of all, to listen to his word, which still speaks with power today. And secondly, to look for him in the lives of his followers, followers, because he lives in them as they share hope in him today. Because we want to find Jesus Christ alive today, I want us to look at another king. A king who made Jesus visible, even though he lived a thousand years before Jesus lived. His name was David David was a servant king. He was the greatest of all of Israel's king. But he also was noted for that quality uh, that's distinct to servants. Humility. And so we'll be looking at the life and and the work and the history of this great servant king David. But we're looking through his life, remember, to Jesus to see what it's like to live with him in our lives here today. What we're going to see this morning is that David was chosen. God chose David. I mean, he was just an ordinary guy living in obscurity like like you and I. Until one day, Samuel, the prophet of God, came to Bethlehem, lined up the sons of Jesse, and he said, "Mm, You. God has chosen you. He's chosen us too. 
I want you to open up your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll see this text. We're going to begin with the lineup as the sons of Jesse are standing there before the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 13. You'll find that on page 226 of your pew Bible. If you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. This is good news. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, And made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. What is the value of my life? Do I have any influence in the world and after I'm gone will anybody remember if the boy if the 15 year old boy had been asking those questions on that particular day there's one place and there's really only one place he would have gone for an answer and that's to his father Jesse in a traditional patriarchal society of course his father would be the one to answer those questions. You know what, even for us today, there's one thing I I know about you, even if I've never met you before, and that's you would love to have a father worthy, and you would love to have a father who would give you his approval. How how much more for this 15-year-old boy? And yet, what message has his father communicated to him? Because... See, this boy knows there's something really significant happening in Bethlehem today. They've all gone out. Samuel the prophet has come to town and he's been left alone. I mean, his father took all the other boys, all the other men in the family, seven of them, and he left me here. He's looking at sheep. He's smelling sheep. And he's assessing the value of his life. Now he's tempted to say to himself, well, I I guess dad probably did that because he knows I'm good with sheep. 
<laughs> and, he, and, he, and he's entrusting the family's wealth to me, and he's got all kinds of spin, you know, to make himself feel better. But the fact is, he was there at the city gate when Samuel first arrived, and he heard Samuel issue the invitation to his dad, Jesse. Jesse, you bring all your sons. And now the boy's thinking, I guess that's what he did. He took all of his sons, all seven of them. And what does that make me? But number eight. It was an important day that day in Bethlehem. God had sent Samuel into town because the current king, Saul, was failing. And it was time for a new king of an Another lineage to rise and come to power in Israel. The prophet of God came with his oil and his spirit. It's all you needed to anoint a king in Israel. Oh, and you need a person. And God said, never mind about that. You go to town and you ask for the sons of Jesse and I'm going to show you which one. And then he lines them up. There's this lineup, right? And you'd line them up, I imagine, uh, uh, by uh, height and age. And the first one there is Eliab and Samuel says, this is going to be so easy. And he just walks right up to Eliab. He's the tallest. He's the oldest. He's the firstborn male son in Israel. This is obviously the guy. And the Holy Spirit says, nope. You're kidding me. This one's tall. He's respected. This one's battle ready. He's powerful. This one is the firstborn. He gets half the inheritance. He's rich. This is the king. And the Lord says, nope. Not in my world. And so he goes, let me see the next one down. And Eliab comes, um, uh, Abinadab comes, and the Lord says, nope. Shema comes, and the Lord says, nope. All seven sons. Seven's the number of completeness in Israel. The whole set. There's not a single one. And Samuel goes, hey, Jesse, is this everybody? Is this everybody? And Jesse goes, yeah, that's it. It's all my sons. Oh, except they're... There's one, there's the youngest, uh, but he's with the sheep. You see that in verse 11. This is, this is his dad speaking. There remains yet the youngest. That word youngest in Hebrew can be translated youngest. It can also be translated the smallest. It can also be translated the insignificant one. Yeah, there's the runt. Yeah, there's the least. But you're not looking for him, trust me. And Samuel says... Well, you trust me because no one's sitting down to eat the meal until I meet this kid. And so they go and they bring him back. And uh, as soon as he comes, then the Lord says to Samuel, this is the one. Arise, anoint him. We have found our king. I choose this boy. And then in the skill of this narrator, for the first time, we get his name. His name is David. Sixteen chapters and we've never known his name. But now we get his name, David. And scholars today agree that the name David means beloved. Because when Samuel pulls out the oil and he anoints his head and the spirit comes upon David, David knows now, perhaps for the first time in his life, not only the value of his life, but the prospects of his future. You are beloved of the God, of the Lord. David. How much is he worth? You measure David's worth by the infinite measure of God's love. Who would choose him? Let me ask you a question. What if there were a world 
in which you, and I'm not talking about the person next to you, what if there were a world in which you were worth millions of dollars, in which you were so influential that you were eradicating injustice somehow in that world, and that you made such an impact, your fame would last for generations. If, if that were true, and if you knew that about yourself, here's the question. Would it change the way you live your day today? Today. February 17th, 2013. Would it? Let me ask you another question. Do you recognize this name? Sixto Jesus Rodriguez. How many of you have heard that name before? Sixto Jesus Rodriguez. Come on, someone here has heard that. I see a hand back there. Good for you. Now, if you'd seen the movie Searching for Sugar Man, which came out this summer, you know that name, or you should know that name. This is a documentary about Jesus, Sixto Jesus Rodriguez, who was a man who lived in the 1960s in Center City, Detroit, in poverty. He was the son of a Mexican immigrant and a Native American. And he lived there... Uh, raised as a working guy. He liked the music and he could play the guitar. In 1968, uh, Rodriguez was playing in a club and a music producer came through Detroit and through the smoke and the shadows, he sees the back of Rodriguez's head and he hears him play and he goes, this guy has the full package. He pursues him and he signs a record deal with him. In 1970, they issue his first uh, album. And it is critically acclaimed, but does not sell a single copy. It bombs. Another producer, two years later, takes another run at Rodriguez. They, they put another album out, and same reaction. Critics love it, and he, they can't sell anything. Not a dime. Two weeks before Christmas, the label drops Rodriguez. And he goes back to his home in Detroit, and works as a day laborer, end of story. Except it's not the end of the story. Rodriguez doesn't know the end of the story. A bootleg copy of one of his albums somehow makes it to South Africa and goes viral. Somehow three record companies in South Africa get rights to reproduce and to sell his two albums. And very short period of time, this guy says, they say, sold over half a million albums. He becomes bigger in South Africa than Elvis Presley, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. Everybody knows Sixto Jesus Rodriguez in South Africa. And he's not making a dime, and he has no idea it's true. In fact, uh, South Africa is so insulated culturally because of the embargo on apartheid uh, what they don't know in South Africa is that he's not uh, a global sensation. They think everybody knows Rodriguez. He became the soundtrack for the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. The, the, the government banned his albums, but he took them down. That's an unlikely story. You want to know what makes it even more unlikely? Spoiler alert. Um, but, you know, uh, NPR and 60 Minutes have already spoiled the story, so I don't mind spoiling for you today. So you just got to know. What happened was two South Africans, here's the story of the movie, two South Africans want to know who is this guy, Rodriguez. 
He's brilliant, but we never hear him interviewed. We've never seen him in concert. Who is he? There are these stories circulating around South Africa. They committed suicide on stage, two different versions of that. So they begin to pursue him. They go in search of this rock king. And they eventually find him. And you know what? He's alive today, living in the same apartment in Center City, Detroit, in a bedroom with a wood-burning stove and not a penny to his name. It's an amazing story. But they put him on an airplane and uh, with his three daughters. They took him to South Africa. And when he got off the plane, he was unbelievably mobbed by paparazzi. There were limousines and mobs and mobs of South Africans just going crazy. Girls were screaming their heads off as he walked down the jetway. I want to suggest to you, as likely as that story is in that movie, it's no more unlikely than the story of David. And it's no more unlikely than the story of your life in Jesus Christ. Verse 7 of this text says, very poignantly, For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's very important that you notice the way that verse is framed. It's kind of framed as an axiom. It's a generalized statement. The, the, the text doesn't say that the Lord saw David's heart. The, the Lord saw his brothers differently. It's generalized. That is to say, it invites all of us to know that it's the truth about us as well. That the Lord sees you the way none, no one else sees you. That there's a world in which, uh, the world of heaven in which you are a very different commodity than you are in this world. You've been chosen. And I want to draw quickly this morning three implications of that fact. The first is this. You're chosen in love. If all this talk of kings and celebrities seems pretty far removed from the life that you're living this Sunday, I want you to consider that. Because I think what was true of David, whose name means beloved, is more true of you this morning than you realize. It's every bit as true of you as it was of David. You are beloved this morning. You've been chosen. This is the story of Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist. And the Gospel of John tells us, I didn't know who I was looking for when I was looking for the Messiah, which means the Anointed One. He's described as Samuel on a hunt for he knows not whom. And he said, as I was baptizing, I knew that I would identify him when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And you know the story. When John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, heaven's open and a dove comes down symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And a voice has been articulated over the waters of baptism. This is my beloved son, the beloved one, Jesus. He's chosen by the Father. But not only Jesus. You see, Jesus is baptized not because he has sins to wash away, but because we do. He so identifies with us. He wants us to know that when we're baptized, we, are, we come alive with him and in him. And in him, what is true of him is true of us. You are beloved. You are my beloved daughter, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Of course, Jesus embodies this fact all the way through his ministry. He keeps hanging out with the wrong people. He keeps choosing the wrong folks. And Jesus says, you didn't choose me. But I chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 for us, 4 tells us. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him in love. And that's the way God sees your heart. Holy and blameless in love. He chose you. 
I like what the Christmas carol says. uh, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary soul rejoices. How valuable are you? As limitless as the measureless love of God. Rodriguez had no idea about this. For 40 years, he lived in absolute obscurity. And yet, he was the love of 20 million people. Until one day, a South African stepped into his life and said, you know who you are. And so Jesus is stepping into your life this morning and saying, my beloved, do you know who you are? You're chosen in love. That's your value. Let's talk about your influence. The second implication is you're chosen to serve. You and I live in a society that lines people up, that orders them according to value, ranks them, celebrities and the poor and the other end. And the game is to move up the line. But not with Jesus. Our servant king comes saying that the greatest among you, the greatest among you will be the one who serves. If you want to be great and Jesus does nourish the aspiration, then serve. It'll be the greatness of your life. You're chosen to serve. Move down the line, Jesus says. Keep moving down the line. Everyone in the line is chosen to serve. I know that we're a little bit troubled by the fact that God seems to have rejected Saul or God has rejected Eliab. But God hasn't rejected them. He's rejected them from being king. For each one of them, there is a calling. There is God has a choice for them, and it looks very different. But when Jesus is at the head of the table, there really is no line. Jesus is present to each and every one of us, wherever we are, and whatever our calling, whatever our mission in life is. And he's saying, I have the resources you need to face what you face today, to make you a servant, to find your greatness. Have you been watching the story about this carnival cruise that came in? I mean, what a nightmare, you know. That's why I don't go on cruises. Oh, yeah. And the ship comes back, and it's been drifting, what is it, nine days. But what we found out yesterday, if you read the news, was uh, someone says it was a tale of two boats. Because there were people on the boat who were trying to get as much as they could for themselves. And then there were people on the boat who started serving one another. One guy, when the bar was open, got a little concerned. He wasn't a teetotaler, the paper says. But you know what he said? We need to pray. And he called people to pray. And they had a prayer movement going on the Carnival Cruise. Did you see that? 200 people were gathering to pray. And out of that movement, they started to serve. And I tell you, there are some people that will never forget that cruise because they're angry at Carnival Cruise Lines. And there are another group of people that will never forget that cruise because they discovered the joy of serving. This is what Phil Smart taught so many of us in such a beautiful way. I mean, Phil Smart told us that you have 24 hours in the day and eight of them are for sleeping and eight of them are for working and eight of them are for volunteering somewhere, the three eights. And a lot of us know Phil Smart. If you just drive around Seattle, you know, you see his name on the license plate of so many cars. But you know what? Phil Smart's not going to be remembered uh, for, for license plates. He's going to be remembered for the thousands of lives he touched in so many ways. Somebody estimated that he visited children in the hospital, children's hospital 64,000 times. I haven't done anything good. Anywhere near 64,000 times. Sixto Rodriguez had an identity that was not in his fame, but was in his faithfulness. I mean, maybe it was a good thing that it took 40 years to discover who he really was. When they discovered him, he made an interesting comment. He said, I I didn't feel lost. (laughs) I knew exactly where I was. And that's true. 
When he came back from South Africa the first time after his first concert, he gave all the money away and went back to his wood stove. I mean, now he's doing concerts around the world. He's on these talk shows. He's been interviewed a gazillion times. He's already, I'm sure, very wealthy. But you know what? That's not where his identity is. His identity all along. His parents apparently gave him a good work ethic, and it was just helping people in the community, building houses, a little construction, raising three daughters, serving. Not fame, but faithfulness. Faithfulness of a servant. That's your calling as well. You're chosen to serve. That's your influence. And then the third implication, we talk about your memory. Because you and I are chosen for eternal impact. I know what it's like to be a servant. I've read about it in books. But you get no feedback. Right? I get feedback, actually. As a pastor, I get a lot of positive reinforcement. But that's very unusual. The real servants in the world are people that nobody ever recognizes. They're not celebrated. They're not publishing books. They're not on talk shows. They're moms and they're janitors and they're farmers and they're people that the quietness of their lives are serving the people around them. And you don't get that kind of feedback that says, way to go, you're doing a great job, but you are. What Samuel learns is that God sees more than we do. He doesn't look at appearances outward. The word for sight or appearances shows up many times in this text. You can't see it in the English translation, but it's repeated in many different forms. I won't take the time to show you that, but trust me, it's there. It's there to say that God looks differently at your life than you look at your life. He sees so much more than you see. And when Jesus sent out the 70 in Paris, he says, go into these towns, just go into the house and say, peace be with you, and then spend some time eating their food and working alongside of them in the harvest. And you know what? When they came back, Jesus says, he says, man, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. That's what Jesus gets to see when you and I serve. He sees the eternal impacts of the smallest little gestures of service. Rodriguez, it was just 30 songs. It was two albums and a failed career. And he changed apartheid. He, he was part of the team that ended injustice in South Africa. He changed the world. But he never saw it until now. Yeah, and I believe when you and I get to heaven, we're going to see things we have, we have no idea how that happened. And people are going to come up to you and they're going to say thank you. Like that old song, thank you for serving the Lord. I was a life that was changed again and again and again. And you'll say, I had no idea. And Jesus said, you know what? That cup of cold water, you did that for me. And it made all the difference for now and eternity. You're chosen in love, friends. You're chosen to serve. And you are chosen for eternal impact. And someday, for some of us very soon, we'll be there face to face and we'll be able to see what we can't imagine now. We'll know that we're chosen. It will be our greatest honor to take our crowns off of our heads and cast them down at the feet of our servant King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're here to worship you. We're here to be stunned by the beauty of your royalty and of your humility. Lord, so infect our lives that when we think about our lives, you are our inspiration. You are our transformation. And you fill our lives with hope that we can share with the people around us. So help us to live with fresh eyes. Help us to see our lives not as the world sees, but as you see. That we might be people who ourselves 
are royal people come in humility to do what the world can't imagine anybody would want to do to serve. We do it in your name and for your glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.